So Genesis chapter 2, verses 25 to chapter 3, verse 7. Let's hear the word of God. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the, snake, sorry, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then... The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your holy and mighty presence. Our prayer, particularly throughout this chapter, is that your word would be our rule, but your Holy Spirit, that he himself would be our teacher, And that your honour and your glory alone might be our supreme concern for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, keep that passage open in front of you. Genesis chapter 3 has been described as one of the most important chapters in all Scripture but also as the saddest chapter in the whole Bible. It is a fountain from which everything that comes after flows, and the only source from which we get a true and accurate view of why our world is the way it is in 2019. The central truth, you may remember, of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 3, is that... Elohim, our awesome creator God, the one who orders all things, giving them function and purpose and therefore meaning, Genesis chapter 1, or Yahweh, the one true living and relational God of Genesis chapter 2, this one God, or Elohim Yahweh, as I'm going to call him from now on, is so astronomically awesome in character and being, but he requires a stage as big as this entire universe to be his temple, his dwelling, or the place where he rests. This entire universe is his throne, where he reigns. Our planet, Earth, is where he rests his foot, as it were, as he sits on the throne of this entire universe. Put slightly differently, the climax of chapter 1 comes in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. Miss this and you miss the whole point of the first chapter of your Bible. 
Elohim Yahweh fashioned and ordered this planet so that you and I might inhabit it, so that he might dwell or rest with us, and such that we might commune or have relationship with him. Again, miss that, and you miss everything, no matter how much science you think you know. Now, since he is so utterly ginormous that he needs an entire universe to act as his sacred space, as it were, the question becomes this. On our home planet, Earth, where was his presence to be focused? Well, I think the answer that Genesis chapter 2 gives is the Garden of Eden. Which was a sort of designated sacred space where Adam and Eve, our ancient representatives, could meet with Elohim Yahweh. While fulfilling their priestly role of working and caring for the ancient temple that was the Garden of Eden. Sadly, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, we have reached the world we are all too familiar with from watching the news and reading our newspapers. It is a world of strife, murder, heartache, and alienation from our Creator God and from one another. And in between all this stands Genesis chapter 3. And no doubt you've seen works of art or scenes depicting a naked Adam and Eve. Garden foliage and hair strategically positioned to cover their modesty. But we perhaps need uh, to leave behind these images and uh, their preconceived ideas. Because Genesis chapter 3 is a timeless text that has enormous explanatory power giving us answers to the deep questions of why our world, the world you and I inhabit, is the way it is. If only we would let it speak and hear it speak. Uh, Some observations, for example. Although the New Testament insists that Adam and Eve were real historical people, in Genesis, their names have clearly and very obviously been assigned to them. What I mean is the name Adam means human or man. And the name Eve means life or living. Chapter 3, verse 20. These are Hebrew names. And the Hebrew language did not exist when Adam and Eve did. So these names therefore suggest that the characters that stand behind them, Adam and Eve, represent something much bigger than themselves, which incidentally is exactly the way the New Testament treats these two people. Another way of saying this is that Genesis chapter 3 is an ancient text, originally written to an ancient people, i.e. Moses originally wrote it to God's people, the Israelites, who, surprise, surprise, thought about the world in different ways to you and me. In 2019, you and I tend to think largely in scientific categories. In the ancient world, people were more likely to think using symbols 
and so would have expressed themselves using imagery. So for them, even though the man, the woman, the garden, the snake, and the tree were considered real, what was perhaps uppermost in their minds is what stood behind these symbols or this imagery in Genesis chapter 3. And by the way, the use of symbols and imagery for them never called into question the reality or the truth of what they were reading. See, Genesis chapter 3 may be independent from science, but not of truth, as far as they were concerned. And we need to bear this in mind as we read it. It might help us understand why we struggle so much with this crucial chapter of the Bible. I say this because perhaps you found yourself cringing a little bit inside when I describe this as one of the most vitally important chapters in all the Bible. We've been encouraged by dark and sinister forces to place these early chapters of Genesis firmly in the category of myth or fantasy. And some of you might have been tempted to think, well, you know, our minister, Raymond, you know, I like him, but... Uh, does he, he doesn't really know what he's talking about when it comes to these chapters of Genesis. I mean, after all, no intelligent, right-thinking person in 2019 could possibly be expected to take these chapters literally much less seriously. And yet, Genesis chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 22 will remain a profound mystery to you as you sit here this afternoon if you do not come to terms with what is written in Genesis chapter 3. That's why we're spending four Sundays looking at this one chapter. And the first thing I want to say, I've just got two points I want to make from this chapter. The first is this. I want to encourage you to trust that God's word is both good and true for you personally here today. I want to encourage you to trust that God's word is both good and truth for you personally here today. Genesis chapter 3 records the unravelling of what was described as very good at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Namely the whole of this created order. And rather than the fall, as the heading of the, New Testament, of the NIV suggests. Uh, perhaps it's better to think of Genesis chapter 3 as a sort of the creation event. At the center of which is this encounter or dialogue between Eve and the snake of all creatures. It is a conversation but has catastrophic consequences. What I call the dialogue of descent into rebellion, if you like. I suppose the obvious question to ask is this. What is this talking snake doing in God's very good garden? Verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? At this point, observation of the text becomes fascinating to my mind. Because in my experience, the longer you've been a Christian or been reading the Bible, the less observant of the text you become. Because of course, you think you already know what's in the text. And in my experience, the worst culprits are those who've been Christians for a while. 
What I mean is, we are nowhere told in Genesis chapter 3 that the snake was in the garden. Much less in the tree, as often depicted in the media. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says that Adam, Adam was put in the Garden of Eden specifically to work and to care for it. Much like the priest worked and cared for the temple in the rest of the Old Testament. So if the Garden of Eden was the first ancient temple, as I want to suggest to you, it's quite possible that Adam and Eve did not live there. In the text of Genesis chapter 3, a great deal is left unspecified. I think we unconsciously fill in the gaps, often incorrectly. Or at best, we make inaccurate assumptions. And if you've been following this series carefully, you will understand when I say that it seems to me that the Garden of Eden was the center of order in God's universe. A place of supreme spiritual purpose and meaning. Uh, the woman's encounter with this snake could well have taken place in the non-ordered world outside of the Garden of Eden. See, the very first readers of this text probably thought of the serpent as some kind of chaos monster or creature, not unlike those already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 21. And notice, this creature was created by God like the other wild animals. But in verse 1, it's described as more crafty. This word crafty need not suggest anything evil as such. We get a sense of the meaning of this word from the following description of the crafty person. Shrewd and calculating. Willing to bend and torture the limits of acceptable behavior, but not to cross the line into illegalities. Unpleasant and purposely misleading in speech, but not an out-and-out liar. Knows how to read people and situations, and how to turn their readings to advantage. A keen wit and a rapier, a sharp tongue, are their tools. That's from this word crafty, that's how you might describe the crafty person. Shrewd, calculating, bends the limits of acceptable behavior, unpleasant, misleading in speech. Not an, out, an outlier, knows how to read situations and work them to their advantage. I mean, you know people like that? Perhaps you are a person like that. That's what we're meant to understand about this creature. So in a sense, this creature was simply being true to its nature, namely that of creating disorder or chaos. Although it has to be said that the fact that it speaks should alert us that there is something not quite right here. Uh, you could paraphrase its opening question to the woman something like this. Really? Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent's tone is an incredulous one. Really? That, that doesn't sound like the God that I know. The serpent is subtly smuggling in the idea that God's word must be subject, might be subject rather, to the woman's judgment or reinterpretation. What an utterly enticing thought, thinks the woman perhaps. 
Notice, God's word is not denied as such. But there is also this very subtle suggestion that, that perhaps God is not as generous as the woman had been led to believe. Uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, reads as follows. It's over the page. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But notice in verse 1, the serpent introduces the word any. Won't God let you eat from any of the trees? He doesn't come out and say it, but the subtle suggestion is that God is being less than generous. Then in verse 2, it's as if the woman runs with this idea in a reply because the woman doesn't mention Yahweh's generosity at all. In fact, like the serpent, rather than use his covenant name, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, she just calls him God. It's as if Yahweh begins to move from being her covenant Lord to just her distant or remote creator Elohim. Then in verse 3, she distorts God's word by adding something he had not said. But they shouldn't even touch the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. I mean, you know the scene. Perhaps you tell your daughter that her and her friends are making too much noise. I mean, she goes running to mummy saying, well, daddy says Jane and Janet can't come around to play anymore. That's not quite what daddy said, is it? Finally, the woman minimizes the penalty for disobedience. What Yahweh more literally said at the end of chapter 2, verse 17 is this, in the day that you eat, to die, you will die. But in her reply to the serpent at the end of verse 3, Eve is less emphatic. In summary then, up to now the serpent has not really said or done anything wrong. As such. But through a subtle use of words and tone, he has sowed seeds of doubt and mistrust in the woman's mind. About Elohim Yahweh's goodness and his right and just punishment of wrongdoing. Indeed, he tempts her into playing down Yahweh's generosity, thus making him appear stricter than is true. Verse 2. Into distorting his word and also minimizing his judgment or penalty against sin. Verse 3. In essence, the serpent has helped to distort, to pervert the very character of God in the mind of the woman. And yet again, I think it is important to see that verse 4 is not an out-and-out lie from the serpent. You see, Adam and Eve did not actually die on the day they ate that piece of fruit, at least not physically and not immediately. And in a sense, their eyes were opened and they did become like God, as we shall see in a moment, only not in the way that they had imagined. The point is, Sin promises so much, yet it gives so little in return, brothers and sisters. But behind the words of the serpent in verse 5 stands the idea that Elohim Yahweh is trying to hold Adam and Eve back by withholding something good from them. One writer puts it like this. God is bluffing when he threatens dire consequences in eating this fruit. 
there will in fact be no death, no evil consequences. For the truth is that eating from the tree will actually bring benefits, which God wants, as the small sport that he is, to keep for himself. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is why he threatens death. He doesn't want you to have all this extra knowledge. But let us tell you, but let me tell you, God's threat is entirely idle. That's what the serpent wants a woman to think. So often we have a very simplistic view of sin, don't we? Reducing it to a sexual act or some major error in doctrine, but in reality, sin is far more complex and a good deal more subtle and therefore dangerous than we dare imagine or believe. It begins with a subtle and seemingly trivial thing, according to verse 1. So here it is, the world's greatest disaster begins with a very, seem- a very small and seemingly insignificant question. Did God really say? Which uh, reminds me of that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where Boromir, played by Sean Bean, gets a hold of Sauron's ring of power after Frodo stumbles in the snow and loses it. And as Boromir stands transfixed, holding and gazing at the ring in his possession for that brief moment, he says this, It is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt for so small a thing. Surely there's a great warning here for us, for me, when it comes to sin in our lives, in my life. Our descent need not start with a big thing, but a small and seemingly insignificant question. In 2 Corinthians 11, in the New Testament, it makes it clear that just as Eve was deceived here in Genesis chapter 3, in our minds, you and I can be led astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For example, are you and I not conned into believing that God is often withholding some good thing from us? God, why are you against sex and pleasure and material things? Never mind the fact that he invented them all in the first place. We think we will lose out if we follow him. Often people who are not Christians think that becoming one will lead to FOMO. You know FOMO? The fear of missing out. The cost of of turning to God is a price I just don't want to pay. Even amongst us who claim to be Christians, lies, lurks this lie, welling up into, into the fear that Taking up my cross and following Jesus wholeheartedly can't possibly be a good thing. The serpent's lie about God's goodness slithers under the door of our thinking in all sorts of areas. At least it does mine. And yet Genesis chapter 2 and indeed the rest of the Bible clearly shows Elohim Yahweh to be a God of lavish generosity. How many temptations get a foothold because we insist on believing the serpent's lie? In other words, here is the person who has left their spouse for someone else. And when challenged, 
They believe repenting would cause their world to fall apart and can't possibly be a good or right thing to do. Or here is the person who, after some investigation, suspects that Christianity might just be true. But they are, they are fearful of taking things further because in their mind, they have too much to lose. Too many good things to lose. Both are different versions of the serpent's lie. Namely, that God does not have your best interest at heart. That his word is not good and is not true. But notice also from verse 4 that the doctrine of divine judgment is the very first doctrine that is called into question. You will not certainly die. This is the serpent. It's no accident that we live in a world that loves to believe that actions have no consequences. So the woman who gets drunk at a party on Saturday night loves to think that the worst that could possibly happen is a really bad hangover on Sunday morning. Alas, if only that were true, as many a woman has discovered to her cost. Or what about the vicar who puts together some nice readings and some hymns that convinces everyone at at Uncle Peter's funeral that he's now in a better place. Everyone knows that he was a dirty, rotten scoundrel when he was alive, yet they leave his funeral thinking a God who doesn't care how he lived means, well, that I can carry on living how I please as well. I mean, we don't need to bother with a God like that. He will never judge or condemn me, will he? Of course not. I want to encourage you from this chapter to trust that God's word is both good and true for me and for you. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Trust. Trust me when I tell you that sin will appear attractive, pleasurable and desirable to you personally as well as to me. Now, the text is, again, remarkably non-specific about the time frame between verses 1 to 5 and verse 6 and 7. It could have been weeks, months, even years in which the seed of doubt and mistrust grew in Eve's mind towards Elohim Yahweh. We're simply not told. But we are told that Eve found herself in the Garden of Eden looking at that forbidden tree. Who knows? How often she gazed longingly at it and how long she resisted the temptation. But notice the use of the words saw and good in verse 6. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of a tree was good. It's as if Moses is echoing Elohim who in chapter 1 pronounced what he saw to be good. I think six or seven times. Only what Eve sees as good is that which Elohim Yahweh has already forbidden or declared not good. And sadly, since that day in the Garden of Eden, what is often good in our eyes, yours and mine, is not good in the eyes of our Creator. 
It's as if Eve wants to replace what Elohim Yahweh declares as good with what she thinks is good. Which raises the question, what is this extra knowledge of good and evil that is promised once their eyes are opened in verse 5? I think we can equate it with wisdom in verse 6. But as strange, Adam and Eve already had some knowledge of good and evil. Good was surely obeying the word of Elohim Yahweh. Evil was specifically disobeying his word in chapter 2 verse 17. And according to verse 3 of our chapter, Eve was aware of this prohibition. See it in verse 3? But God did say you must not eat fruit from a tree that is in the middle of the garden. Also, it cannot refer to the ability to commit evil because verse 5 describes this knowledge as something that God knows. And the Bible is clear that Elohim Yahweh does not engage or know evil in the way that you and I know it. In other words, can be held responsible for it because he is he's holy or pure. And good and evil cannot be a set of rules or principles that are over and above him because, well, nothing is. No, good and evil are only good and evil because he decrees them as such. Thus, they are expressions of his character and his wisdom. Therefore, this knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge to decide what is good and what is evil. A similar expression is used of the law-making role of King Solomon in 1 Kings 3. The serpent then was tempting Eve to take on decisions that rightly belonged to Elohim Yahweh alone. This chapter is not simply about Adam and Eve breaking the law so much as them wanting to become the lawmakers themselves. The ones who decide what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. And again, ever since this day, you and I want to be the ones who set the rules or make up our own moral code. We want to be independent of Yahweh. We want the autonomy or the freedom to decide to do what we want. And today, that even means, despite what biology says, declaring my gender to be what I think it to be, what I've decided it to be. Which strikes at the very heart of God's creation and what he has decided. And of course, if we make up the rules, then we can make rules that we can keep. So not only can we feel good about ourselves, but we can pat ourselves self-righteously on the back and claim to be morally upright. Of course, the inconvenient truth that stands in our way is the true lawmaker himself. He calls this rebellion, treason. At least, that's what his word says. But let's be very clear. Sin will appear attractive, pleasurable, and desirable, at least for a time. In verse 6, first, the fruit was good for food. We're never told it was an apple, by the way. But we are told Eve is drawn in by what 1 John calls the lust of the flesh. She could have had any fruit from any other tree in that garden, but her fleshly appetite was such that she lusted after this particular fruit. It attracted her attention. 
Second, having seen this fruit, it became pleasing in her eyes. That is the lust of the eyes, according to 1 John. She was seduced by the attractiveness of this fruit. It appealed to her senses. After all, it promised such, so much pleasure. But then sin, brothers and sisters, always does. Let's not be naive about that. Finally, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Wisdom is normally a good thing in the Bible, but not here. Here, Eve is motivated by what one John calls the pride of life. She wants to be godlike. The very thing that as a creature she could never be. And so stands the proverbial saying, pride comes before the fall. And every part of Adam and Eve is involved in this decreation event. The appetite, good for food. The mind, desirable for gaining wisdom. And the will, she took, she ate, she gave. Verse 6. Beware, brothers and sisters, but then and now, sin will be attractive. It will be pleasurable. It will be desirable. I remember a friend of mine commenting on Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 that he always thought that Adam was off playing golf when Eve ate the fruit. But did you notice? According to verse 6, Adam was right there with her. Adam Tagalong as one writer describes him. It's noteworthy that in addressing the woman in verses 1 to 5, the serpent uses the plural repeatedly as if addressing more than one person. According to her own words, Eve was deceived, verse 13. So what was Adam's excuse? Well, it would appear he didn't have one. Which makes him even more guilty than the woman. Which, interestingly, again, is the way the New Testament treats it. Finally, notice that verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3 of Genesis is sandwiched between chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 3, verse 7. Let me read these verses side by side. Verse 25, chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. naked. Thank you, Dele. Someone's awake. See, at the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve were at peace with Elohim Yahweh. They were at peace with one another. They were at peace within themselves. And they were at peace with the world around them. By the time we get to chapter 3 verse 7. All of that has been completely shattered. It's gone. Ruined. Destroyed. Here then is the very root of our human condition. Rebellion or treason. Against God Almighty himself. This is the problem at the heart of the Bible's analysis of all that is wrong with our world. It's what's wrong with me and it's what's wrong with you. And it is an immensely serious problem. Since Elohim Yahweh alone has the right to play God in his world and in my life and in your life. In the House of Lords here in London, there is a magnificent gilded throne. 
And our queen sits on it when she gives her annual speech as she opens parliament. It happened quite recently. Now, whether you are a royalist or a republican, on that day, it would be unthinkable for anyone other than the queen to sit on that throne. Can you imagine if you did? I dare not think what would happen when the actual queen then turns up. Well, in verse 8, Elohim, Yahweh, turns up. However, he turns up to judge. And we'll talk about that in subsequent weeks. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, he turns up again. But this time, as the second Adam, according to Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. His task? To radically and completely overturn to undo all that this first Adam did and to fulfill the hope of the gospel expressed in verse 15 of this very chapter. And that is, you and I need to put, therefore, our trust in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as far as this chapter is concerned, can I encourage you, can I exhort you, can I plead with you, trust that God's word is both good and true for you personally. But also, at the same time, trust that sin will appear attractive, pleasurable, and desirable. Therefore, put your trust in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, day by day, week by week, year by year. Let's bow our heads. Have a moment of quiet.